Galatians. Let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll launch into this book. Father God, I ask as we consider this, this amazing book that you have given to us, this gift that you've given to your people, to your church throughout its history, that, Lord, that you would help us to begin to really appreciate and value it. That, in fact, my prayer is always that when we get done talking about this, there would be this just desire in every one of our hearts to sit down and read it for ourselves, to know it, to absorb its truths, and let it be transformational in our lives, Lord. We, we ask you for that grace going into our study tonight and trust you, Lord, that you'll be faithful to do it because you always exceed our imaginations, not just our requests, Lord. You do far more than we would have even thought to ask for. So bless us, we trust you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Galatians, you know, it, it's, most people don't realize that there would never have been a Protestant Reformation, a, a Luther, a Zwingli, a Calvin, uh, if it were not for the letter to the Galatians, because each of these men spoke about the pivotal role this book played in their understanding of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. More than any other book, it opens the window on the enlightenment of the grace of God. And as we're studying on Sunday mornings through the book of Romans, we're really looking at a very deeply, carefully thought through, concise, comprehensive presentation of the gospel of grace. But long before Paul wrote the great book of Romans, he began really with the first of his letters that we have still surviving, writing to the Galatians. Essentially, it's Romans in miniature. And it's one of the most frank and straightforward books that we have within, our, within the Scriptures. Uh, we talked about in 2 Corinthians how biographical and Paul was so revealing about his own self and his own struggles and so forth. It's just as transparent reading the Galatians, except Paul is not so much focusing on himself. He says some of the hardest things to people that were promoting a gospel without grace that we will find any place in the Scripture. Uh, it just really anchors in my mind that Paul would not be a guy I'd want to cross or get into an argument with. But essentially, in the world that was loaded with legalism and superstition, what this book did is it dismantles that whole corrupting, strangling influence. And it's really kind of a, a declaration of independence, much like the way that, that the Declaration of Independence was the Founding Fathers, so also this becomes a declaration to the church that has continually brought us back to the simple message that we are saved by grace and not by works. Well, as I also always begin by going through what I call my vital statistics, the who, where, what, when, when, why, and so forth, we want to begin by saying essentially that Paul is the author and there's really no serious dispute among scholars as to that fact. But it's interesting where he was writing, because Galatia is not the name of a city, it's a name of a region. As you'll see on the map, this whole area was a province within the Roman Empire called Galatia. But we're pretty sure that Paul was writing specifically to these churches that he planted there in his first missionary journey with Barnabas, the city of Antioch Pisidia. You'll notice there they start in Antioch, Syria, and this is another Antioch, town by the same name, but Antioch of Syria, but they, uh, he planted churches in Antioch of Pisidia, in Iconium, Lystra, and in Derbe, and it's these churches to whom he was writing. Uh, you can read more about that ministry of planting those churches in Acts chapter 13 and 14. But the, church, the trip resulted in the conversion of many Gentiles and the establishment of what became 
predominantly Gentile churches. And this gave rise to a great deal of controversy in the early church. In fact, when Paul makes the comment in chapter 2, verse 12, when he said there were certain men who came from James, the James that he's referring to is not James the apostle, one of the twelve, but rather James the half-brother of Jesus, who himself was not an apostle, but was highly esteemed, respected lead pastor, bishop, elder of the church in Jerusalem. And we have no indication that these men had come on his behest or by his instruction or that he was involved at all in their efforts. But as they heard about the work that God was doing, these Jewish believers came from Jerusalem and they felt it was their responsibility, their mission to complete the work that Paul had begun. In other words, they were basically intending to fully convert the Gentiles into Judaism. In fact, Luke describes the beginning of the conflict this way in Acts chapter 15. He starts in verse 1 by saying, some men came down from Judea, a reference to Jerusalem, to Antioch, Pisidia, uh, Antioch in Syria, and were teaching the brothers, quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So in their mind, they saw Christianity as the completion of Judaism but they themselves were still very much committed to Judaism and particularly the school of the Pharisees, which was in many ways uh, not only one of the strictest forms of Judaism, but is really the form of Judaism that we see manifested in the Orthodox world today. Orthodox Jews do not consider the Pharisees to be bad people, so be careful when you're talking to them because they actually consider the Pharisees to be the good guys. And... Um, the, the New Testament presents them as being the, one of the chief opponents of the early church. What this tells us is this, this letter was probably the earliest, the first of Paul's letter, written sometime around 49 AD, and uh, written again, as I said, from Antioch and Syria, which was the center of Gentile Christianity. We know that Jerusalem still held the position of being the most powerful, influential, and important center of Christianity. But really, the real explosion of the faith started when uh, people fled from persecution in Jerusalem, moved to Antioch and Syria, and then began to share their faith. And we're not told the details, but in the process, many Gentiles began to convert to Christianity. And it's there, in large part, where a lot of the theology, how do the Gentiles fit into the faith of Christianity, was worked through and expressed. Well, as a consequence of these individuals coming and trying to convert them or really convince these Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses, which involved all the dietary laws and in the full, full form of, of Judaism, um, there was a church council, the first church council, if you will. It's recorded in Acts chapter 15, where the question of the Gentile status within the church was debated. Essentially, first of all, we're Gentiles, and by application of time, referring to you and I as well, were Gentiles saved by faith alone, or were they also required to embrace Judaism and to keep the Mosaic law? 
Uh, that question still reverberate, reverberates even within uh, various Christian groups today. And it really comes down to more simply, are we saved by believing or by achieving? Are we saved by what we believe or by what we achieve? Are we saved by our works or are we saved by the grace of God? Well, if you've read Acts 15, you know that the council ruled in support of Paul and the idea that we are saved by faith and grace alone. But even though there appears to have been a very heated debate, at the end it was decided in, in favor of, of Paul and his, his party. Uh, it was Peter who offered probably one of the most compelling arguments, having been the first to lead a Gentile to Christ. Remember in chapter 10 when he went to the house of Cornelia, the first Gentile convert by really a powerful revelation of God. But we read in Acts 15.10 that he stands up and says, now, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. I think it's a wonderful admission by Peter, who himself was a committed Orthodox Jew his entire life, and yet he said, we have never been able to fulfill the, quali the, the commands of the law. It only reminds us constantly that we are sinners, so that why are we now trying to put on to them? It never worked for us. Why do we want to require it of them? And this becomes really a, a, a compelling argument, and we'll find that in our closed night that it's even one that Paul uses. It doesn't, the law does not work for people who follow it, why should we require other people to try to do it when it didn't work for us? Well, it was finally James, who was the elder of the church and highly respected, who stood up in the conclusion and said, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat strangled of strangled animals and from blood. Essentially, these were things that were involved in the idol worship of the Greek and the Roman gods. And he said, essentially, we should tell them, don't participate in the practices of idolatry, which is, was difficult because you have to understand, it would be like me saying to you, you become a Christian now, you can no longer run in Bloomsday. I know most of you would thank me for that, but, or, you know, you're a Christian and you can no longer attend a Gonzaga game. You know, it's, it's that kind of idea. You're talking about something that was so central to the daily life of these people, and he's saying the only thing we say is don't participate in these worship services, which were essentially the holidays and the celebrations around which their calendar was based. And so it was a, 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 a challenge, but at the same time, James goes on, he says, Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest of times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So why did Paul need to write this letter in the first place? Well, sadly, these Judaizers, these members, Christians who were part of the Pharisees' party, did not accept this ruling, and this became the first schism within the early church. Uh, these men would be the source of constant conflict for Paul, and especially his mission to the Gentiles, it was almost as if they followed him from city to city, trying to uh, win over these people to become uh, Jews again. And that battle still remains a major conflict, even within Christianity today. Because even today, many people are kind of fearful that if you teach too heavily, if there's too much of an emphasis upon salvation by grace alone that people will interpret it as, as a license to continue living in immorality. 
Uh, I remember uh, early on, I remember the first time I ever had Gail Irwin speak at our church, and I asked him, I said, what's the balance between uh, grace and works? And he said, your question uh, overlooks the fact that grace, by its very definition, is imbalance. There's no balance. It's all God. It's none of you. So if you look for a balance, you're going to end up in trouble. And that's really, I think, the tension that many people come to. Because you have various groups. Uh, the, the Mormon organization will, will say things like, well, you're saved by grace and works, which is a lot like saying, I love spaghetti, just hate, I love spaghetti but I just hate uh, noodles. I don't like pasta. I mean, it's, it's a nonsensical statement because these are oil and water. Grace and works are, are two very separate things, and you can't make them to be the same. Uh, even the Roman church will say, well, you're saved by grace, but, but you're, you know, you're brought to Christ by grace, but you're kept by your works. And that's taught not just in the Roman church. That's taught in a lot of uh, 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 Protestant churches as well that you get to God by grace, but after that, it's your responsibility to make sure you live up to the uh, requirements of membership. But what they're doing is really creating a false dichotomy. In a way, it's like they're making enemies of two friends, like it's either or. Because I think grace and works are connected, and they are in great terms, actually. Because we're saved by faith in God and in His grace alone, we're told. And Paul, when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's no other explanation, he says. He says this over and over again in a myriad of ways, that I am in Christ today not because of my works, because my works were as far in opposition to what God was doing as they could possibly be. I was an enemy of the church. I persecuted uh, the believers. I did everything to exterminate it, and God saved me. It's really, Paul may, tries to make it very clear to us and wants us not to miss that point. You couldn't have been farther from the grace of God than I was, and yet God saved me by His divine grace, not because I was looking for Him or asking or had become curious, or you couldn't even put Him in the category of being a seeker. <laughs> he was anything but that. But God intruded in His life in sovereign grace and saved His soul. And that's why I love, I love something Chuck Swindoll said in regards to this whole thing. He said, God's sovereignty bestows the gift of eternal life on the sinner at the moment he believes and thereby declares him righteous. While the sinner still lives a life marked by periodic sinfulness, he hasn't joined a church, he hasn't started paying tithes, he hasn't given up all to follow Christ, he hasn't been baptized, he hasn't promised to live a sacrificial and pure life. He has simply taken the gift of eternal life. Now, the problem is, is that we say well, that's the end of it. Well, in fact, that's really where grace begins because we are justified by faith. Justified means to be declared, uh, basically cleansed from our sin, declared by God to be in right relationship with Him. But what follows justification is this process, a lifeline process called sanctification. And that sanctification literally means being separated to God for His purposes. And that's why we find that grace brings us to Christ and grace continues to speak into our life and to minister to us. In fact, Paul writing to Titus reminded, told him to remind the, the Cretans, he said in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 of his letter, he says, the grace of God teaches us, that's interesting, the grace of God, if we're experiencing the grace of God in our life, that grace is teaching us to say no to ungodliness. In other words, ungodliness is anything that comes between me and God 
and godly and, and uh, worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so Swindoll adds uh, along that, he says, from that moment on, from the moment you come to Christ, the justified sinner begins a process of growth toward maturity called sanctification. Day by day, bit by bit, we learn what it means to live a life that honors Christ. But immediately, no way. So on the one hand, we don't want to say that you can just live any way you want because essentially if you have really come to know Christ, you don't live any way you want. It would be like a man saying to his wife, I love you, but I just want to love a lot of other women as well at the same time. You know, I mean, any woman who in her, in her right mind would simply say, that's not love. <laughs> love implies an exclusivity in it in terms of that kind of relationship. And essentially, that's true. If I love my wife, it's going to be manifested in behavior that's consistent with somebody who loves their wife or loves their children or any other person. And that's why Jesus simply put in the Gospels, if you love me, keep my commandments. I mean, it's, just, it's, not, it's not a complex concept. Do I keep them perfectly or constantly? I'm afraid not. I mean, oh, I'm sorry, I revealed that to you. Probably shattered your image of me. But a simple fact is that we understand that this is the standard so that when you look at the years of a person's life, you don't look at them at singular individual moments. You look at the trajectory of their life. And if you know Christ, there's a trajectory that moves you further and further on to that walk with God. So, I, I, I get a little frustrated sometimes when people try to make it an either-or conversation. If I am experiencing the grace of God, as Paul said in his great passage in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, you're saved by faith alone, by grace, and not of yourself, and so forth and so on. And then he says, for you are ordained by God to do good works. That's God has ordained you. If I'm saved, then God has saved me, and He has ordained me. He has called you and I to do those things that bring honor and glory to Him, His name. Now, <clears throat> again, why was it Paul necessary for Paul to write this letter? Well, that's what he tells us really in the opening passage of, of this letter. In verse 6, in fact, he starts by kind of chastising the Galatian believers. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, literally changing sides, or as the, as the one translation put it, you've turned traitor. You've become a traitor to the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That is a gospel that's contrary, it's different, it's an alien nature, so that they call it a gospel, but he goes on to say, it's really not any gospel at all. It's a lie about God. It's not the truth. Evidently, he goes on, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert or to corrupt the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from the heaven named Moroni should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, this is some of Paul's strongest words. He's calling these guys deserters, traitors, aliens, enemies, liars, corruptors, perverts, people who are deserving of eternal damnation. So if you ever wondered how Paul felt about legalists, it's very clear he was deeply concerned. And so what he does is he lays out really the battle lines between the issue of salvation by grace alone on one hand and the idea that you can be saved by your good works. Really, if you're a key verse guy, it's chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, "'It is for freedom that Christ has set us free.'" 
Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The image of the yoke is that idea of being under hard labor. And he says, don't let yourself be put under the hard labor of trying to win your soul by how hard you work for it. Because he said, you'll lose every time. All it will do is reinforce the fact that you are what God said from the very beginning, a sinner saved by grace. Well, so how do we outline the book? Well, basically, I, I divide it into three very simple uh, portions, and um, we'll walk through them briefly. He starts off, first of all, by de de uh, denunciation of those whom he considers to be corruptors of the gospel. We just read most of that passage already, and so we don't need to revisit that again. And then he moves on to basically a defense of his gospel. That is, where did he come to his understanding? And it's interesting because he says essentially three things about that. Number one, he says, I received it by direct divine revelation from God. It didn't come to me through any other men, including Peter or the other apostles. And in fact, he, he makes that very, very clear that it was something that God revealed to him by the Holy Spirit through his study of Scripture. But then he goes on to say that when he presented it to the eldership, the leadership in Jerusalem, they confirmed the rightness of his theology. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, when James and Cephas and John perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen, the Gentiles, and they unto the circumcision. In other words, there was this agreement early on in Paul's ministry that there would be two focuses of the church's evangelism. These men who were coming out of the Jewish culture were going to focus upon evangelizing the Jews. James, the elder of the church in Jerusalem, was even honored and respected by non-Christian Jews for his holiness, his sanctity, his, his faithfulness to keep all the rituals and all the, the things that went along with it because he was adapting himself to their requirements that he might present the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. But, and, and Peter was an evangelist primarily to the, uh, the Jews as well. But Paul said, they recognized that God had called me to reach the Gentile world. And so they gave to us the right hand of fellowship. But then he relates an incident in verse 11 that is really one of the more fascinating stories because, you know, you don't find Paul very often uh, dissing anybody else, but he really disses Peter. I mean, he says in verse 11, he says, when Peter came to Antioch, which again is this primarily Gentile church, he says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. He says, before certain men came from James, these Pharisaical uh, Christians, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, do you remember when in chapters 11, when after Paul had led Cornelius and his household to Christ, that he comes back to Jerusalem in chapter 11, it tells us in the book of Acts, that he's confronted by the leadership of the church. And do you remember what was their issue? They said, we've heard that you ate with Gentiles. 
You see, the idea of the kosher law as this eating things that weren't purified had become such a big issue within Judaism that if you ate food that had been prepared by a Gentile, it could still be, you know, uh, things that were not considered unclean, but if you ate something that was prepared, you probably were polluted and you had to go out and, and, and separate yourself for seven days and go through these cleansing processes and offer sacrifices because you've just touched something. In fact, you wouldn't even invite a Gentile into your house because he might, when you're not looking, touch something. And then later on, you touched it, and by contact, you would get their cooties. And this was a kind of a, a mindset that was just overwhelming. So when they got this word, Paul went to the house. <laughs> he went to first Caesarea, which was a Greek Gentile city, Roman capital of the region. And he went to the house of Cornelius, who was part of the Latin band, basically a, a regiment of soldiers from Italy. And, and, and he sat down and prayed for them and ministered to them and ate dinner with them. They're just beside themselves. Essentially, they're saying, You've fallen off the wagon. You've backslid. You've, you've fallen into deep sin. You're really in deep trouble. That's why in the church sometimes we refer to that kind of attitude as Phariseeism. But essentially, Paul went on to explain, you know what his justification was? <laughs> I went in there by a divine revelation. I was ordered by God to go, in other words. And when I got there, I preached them the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They began to speak in tongues, and they, begot, they got converted and saved. And just like we did on the day of Pentecost, who am I to question what God's doing? He's moving here, and that's all I have to say about it. And this becomes a huge pivotal point, also a point of great controversy in the church, but here's what's interesting. Even though Peter had that experience, here some 15 years later, or maybe almost 20 years, we're not exactly certain the time frame, he falls back into the same old habits, the same way of thinking. He's sitting down at dinner with the Gentiles, Christians, and they're having a fine time, and suddenly these Jews come into the room, and he gets up and goes and separates himself as if he isn't part of their, their dinner. And, you know, uh, said the other brothers did the same thing. What's Paul's response? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. By observing the law, no one will be justified. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So from that point on, the letter moves into really the major portion of the letter, and it's a declaration of what is the gospel of grace. And essentially, Paul asks, uh, you know, uh, has four salient points that he brings out in this last and final portion of the outline. The first thing he asks them is, how were you saved? I mean, were you saved by your faith or were you saved by your works? Where did the power come from in your life? Was it from the law or did it come from grace? In fact, in chapter 3, verse 2, this is what he says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or believing what you heard? Did you receive the Spirit by keeping the law or by believing what you heard? The, it's, 
one of the things in, in the Greek language, whenever you ask a question, a rhetorical question like that, it's always implied uh, that it's a, 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 a yes-no answer. And this idea that, no, I didn't receive the power of the Spirit of God by the law, I received it by grace. He says, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human efforts? I think many of us need to think about that for a moment. So many times we, we've, we're born again in the Spirit, and the Spirit is what changes our life, and yet we think that now I have to start working really hard to prove to God that I, I should be on the team. I've got to live up to His expectations and His requirements, and uh, instead of just humbling ourselves and saying, God, I need your help. He goes on, he says, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you've heard? We know in every case that the answer comes down to this was completely separate from the law, that they had this experience of Christ, they saw the power of God, the Spirit came into them, they were born again before they knew anything about the law or had any interest. It was by the Spirit of God. And even if they had heard the law before, the law had not changed their life. What changed their life was the indwelling presence of Christ in their heart when they simply believed that He was the Messiah, crucified for their sins and resurrected for their justification. And then he goes on to develop examples from the Mosaic law. Keep in mind, they didn't have Galatians yet. Paul hadn't written it yet. So what were the scriptures? The scriptures were the Old Testament books. And he goes in, he starts talking about Abraham. And it's interesting, the examples they give are people who were declared by God to be in right relationship with him before the law had ever begun. Hundreds of years before Moses ever showed up on the sin and, and came down from the mountain with the tablets of stone, God declared Abraham his friend and called him righteous because he believed the things that God had said to him. He was justified by faith when there was no law. And then he goes on to talk about his sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and he draws this interesting comparison. He says, how essentially did Ishmael come into the world? Abraham slept with his handmaid, Hagar, and he made it work. There was nothing really divine or extraordinary. It was basically a, a natural uh, you know, conception. There was nothing out of the ordinary. But what about Sarah? And he says her womb is essentially dead. It's lifeless. It's as if one who has been raised from the dead. And he said so that the promise was not given to Ishmael, which came in the ordinary way. The promise was given through Isaac, who was the son of promise. It was the hand and the miracle of God. Well, the same thing is true with our relationship with God. Why am I a son of God? Because I've followed the law and earned the right to be saved or simply because I believed what Jesus said and have stood on those promises that if I believe in Him, I'll have eternal life. So that really he moves on to the really the third question is, so what is the purpose of the law anyway? So why was it there? If, it's, if it doesn't save us, why did God give it? And he gives really, I think, one of the most important explanations on that question that we find in the New Testament. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 24, he says, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, he says, let me put it in another way. The law was our guardian and our teacher to lead us until Christ came. Now, there's very specific wording there referring to a certain kind of individual, that if you were a wealthy Greek or wealthy Roman, you would have a, basically a, a tutor or a guardian, usually a, a very highly educated uh, slave who would be the constant companion of your children. He would be the one who would guard them and keep them safe and keep them out of trouble. He would also be their teacher and their guide to educate them. Men like uh, Alexander the Great, his tutor, his, his guardian was the great philosopher Aristotle. 
And so these men were responsible, responsible to really shape the minds and the character of these children. And he says, that's what the law was to us. But he says, so now through faith in Christ, we are made right with God. What did they, the law did? It led me to Christ. It brought me to a place where I realized, number one, that I'm a sinner. And I'm a hopeless sinner. And I cannot save myself. And I can never live up unto the law because if I transgress in one point, it's essentially I've transgressed in the whole thing. And believe me, you have transgressed in more than one point. And so he goes on and says, but now that faith in Christ has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So when a child came to a level of maturity, a majority in his life, he was now a son with his own, responsible for his own choices, his own decision, his own behavior. And he says, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might learn to be justified by faith. And so he says, it's not a bad thing. And that's, again, one of those things where we try to take things in, that are really friends and make them enemy. God brought the law that the righteous standards of God might be clearly known. Thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, you know, you shalt lie. We, these things create a very clear and concise statement about what God's expectations are of us. And as Jesus revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not even just the overt transgression of those things. It's sometimes the subtle ways in which that can express itself in our life. That in ways that maybe nobody ever notices, the white lies, the, the little indiscretions and so forth, even when we talk about the, the journey of the thought life and so forth, it all proves what the psalmist David said so clearly in Psalm 51. He says, I was conceived in sin. I mean, I was conceived in iniquity. Not that his mother committed sin, but he's just simply saying, when I was born, sin became part of my DNA. It's something I carry with me. And, and the fact that I'm a sinner, not because I have done anything at that point, I'm a sinner because sin is rooted in my nature and it's going to express itself in some way. And that's why later on in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, in light of all of that, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? In other words, one of the things we find is the more earnest we become to try to purify our moral and ethical behavior, the more we can convinced that we are impure, immoral, and unethical. And so you either move in one direction, you either go crazy, or you just walk away and say, I can't do it, or else you become a hypocrite. And this was what Jesus was so frustrated with in his own time because the hypocrisy of those who pretended to be spiritual men, you read Matthew chapter 23 and he speaks of the hypocrisy. He says, you do all these things to, be, to look good on the outside, but inside you are like, there's nothing but dead men's bones. You're like a tomb on the inside. There's no life there. And so he begins to, to really confront this idea that somehow you can become morally acceptable to God and save yourself by your good behavior. Um, and then he goes on he, in chapter 5, he, he pursues it and said, basically, to answer the argument, does grace lead us to immorality? Because that's the argument some people gave. Yeah, well, if you just tell people that they're saved by grace, they're just going to go out and do anything. Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, my brothers, we are called to be free. Okay. But do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. 
The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Simple principle is that freedom abused becomes freedom lost. I mean, you become a slave. Later on, Paul would develop this thought very deeply, and he talks about basically whatever you give yourself over to, you become the slave of that thing. You can give yourself to Christ, and you can become the slave of Christ, and you can serve His purposes, or you can give Him a slave to your own fleshly desires, and you'll become a slave of those desires. So whatever you yield your members to, that becomes the master of your life. And Paul's saying, we have been set free through Christ so that we have a choice. Before I was saved, I didn't have a choice. I had my sinful nature, and I found every clever way I could think of to fulfill it. I mean, you, you, you know, you know, we don't like to talk about it much, do we? But there were things that we would do. We found clever ways in which we could disguise the real motives of our hearts. But in reality, we were driven by that sinful, selfish nature. And when I came to Christ... For the first time, I discovered there is another path. And not only finding that truth revealed, but also the power, which Paul referred to earlier, the power to live differently, to follow Him, and to serve His purposes. Now, very last point I want to make. So how do I know whether I'm a grace-based Christian or a works based Christian? How do I know whether I'm living by faith or I'm living by law? How can I discern it? Well, Paul asks a really interesting question in chapter 4, verse 15. He says to the Galatians, what has happened to all your joy? What has happened to your joy? You see, legalism steals your joy. I mean, you may start off energetic and confident, boy, I'm going to keep these resolutions and I'm going to follow these rules and I'm going to be this good guy. But before long, you find yourself tripping and stumbling over your own feet and the guilt and the shame that you begin to feel just beats you down over and over again. My pastor had a great saying one time. He said, he says, how do you distinguish between whether the voices in your head are God or the devil? <laughs> My, I was all ears at that moment because I really needed to know the difference. He says, it's where it leads you. He says, the devil will come to you and he'll tell you to turn away from cr the cross because you're too filthy, you're too sinful. But Christ always says, come and humble yourself at the foot of the cross and receive grace. So anytime you have that sense, oh man, I've just blown it, I've broken the toy, there's no repair, I've messed up so bad, I've screwed my life up, I, I just made the same mistake over and over again, I can't go back and ask God to forgive me one more time because I have no excuse, I just keep on doing the same thing. I'm a dog returned to his vomit, a sow swallowing in the mud, you know, you know, not that I've ever had this conversation, I'm, I'm talking about other people, right? But you go through that and you have to understand, when that happens, when you realize that is not the voice of the Spirit of God, that's, a, that's the, coming from the pits of hell. No, the voice of God says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, who, who have a heavy yoke, come and learn of me. Jesus is always saying to us, come to me, I will forgive, I will cleanse. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, He's just and faithful to do what? To forgive us? and to cleanse us. My translation literally is that He forgives me and He fixes me. 
Because I, you know, that's, that's what I need. When I see sin in my life, I have to turn to Him and say, Lord, can you fix this? Because I can't. You know, it's like me turning to my seven-year-old granddaughter and saying, do you know how this app works? Yeah, <laughs> because I've been working on it for an hour and I can't figure out how to even open it. You know, it's, it's just it's that I have to go someplace, I have to go somebody with a, a, a greater capacity than I have. And that's what we do. We come to God with the broken and damaged things in our life. I remember one way it was personalized to me so many years ago. My wife, I was at, at work, I was at church in, down in California, and my wife called me up and said, I got the kids in the car, the car broke down, we're stuck here on the side of the road. So I thought, great. I jump in the car. We had no money, and, and so this was always a challenge. You know, I had to always try to fix things myself. And those of you who have ever watched me work on cars know that it's, it's a crime that shouldn't happen. Um, but I, So I'm driving all the way to where she's at and thinking, God, I don't know what to do. And the crazy thing is I get there, and I try, you know, I'm trying to act, make them feel comfortable. And so I pop the hood open, and I look under the hood. And all of a sudden, this voice in my head said, take off the distributor cap. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> so I took off the cap, and the rotor had broke. And so I said to my wife, I know exactly what the problem is. I'll be right back. <laughs> and, you know, so I went to the store. I re took it, got replaced the rotor, put it back on, put it all back together. Thing ran fine. And my wife thought I was a genius. Uh, took me weeks to dispel her from that belief. But how did I do that? I mean, I, it, it was divine revelation. But I was simply saying, God, I don't know how to fix this. I just need you to fix it. And if you can take that simple, silly little illustration and begin to apply it to the big things that are going in your life, then you can begin to see how God works in amazing ways. You can look at a marriage that you're saying, this one is it's dead on arrival. There's no hope. God, can you fix this? You know, it's kids who are out of control and heading it fast. They're driving as fast as they can in the wrong direction. God, can you fix this? Because I can't fix it. Part of the thing that makes those situations worse sometimes is we try to fix them. And every time we do, we just make them worse. We just say, God, you got to fix it. You fix your finances. God, I... We can't cover these expenses. I, I need you to fix my expenses, God. Those are the things that God is yearning to have the opportunity to display His power in your life to show you what, you, what He can do on your behalf. When you begin to function like that, it's, um, I'm not saying you won't still have problems. I'm not saying the, the rotor on your... <clears throat> well, you don't have a rotor anymore, <laughs> but cars are so much better now. That's why I don't understand people who love the oldies. Man... <laughs> I, they were always breaking down on me, but the reality is that God can step in and fix and show you what to do. doesn't mean you won't have the problem, but when you humble yourself before Him saying, God, I need your help, God shows up and provides solutions and answers because He's a God of miracles. Father, I thank You for this beautiful, wonderful book. Thank You for all of its testimonies and all of its truths. And I pray, Lord, that You would help us to really become anchored in our own hearts by your Holy Spirit in the grace of God that is so undeservedly shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take it away, Luke.